This time I'll invite you to take a Bible and to open it to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, we're going to focus in on verse 39, but we'll read the paragraph that it comes from in verses 38 to 40. You'll find that on page 828 for you if you're using one of the Bibles provided in the pew. Uh, But we're beginning today a series that will continue all the way through the end of June through the second part of our mission statement, which is to love God, to care for all people, and to communicate his word. So if you're interested to know what the text and the topic of the next few messages will be on Sundays, you just have to grab one of these at the Welcome Center. It's our uh, membership covenant of what we commit and under to care for all people. It reads, I commit to the inward journey of authentic community and loving accountability with one another by loving my neighbor as myself, by walking in a manner worthy of the calling with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, and eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. By using the varieties of gifts and service and activities of the Spirit for the common good, by restoring repentant believers in a spirit of gentleness, bearing one another's burdens, and so fulfilling the law of Christ, and by praying, interceding, and giving thanks for all people, especially for those in positions of leadership. I expect you to retain none of that for the moment as I read that. So I invite you to take one of these, but we're going to do a deep dive on each one of those uh, sections in our membership covenant of what it is that we believe God calls his people to commit to. And so we will look at the scriptures over the next month to consider why we say that. And the first one of loving our neighbor as ourself, we get from what is called the great commandment here in Matthew 22, beginning in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so what we're focusing on is that second part where he said that we are to love our neighbor as ourself. So this is Jesus responding to a question from someone saying, okay, I can't read the whole thing, so if you were to summarize it for me, if you were to tell me what's the most important thing, what's the greatest commandment that I should be paying attention to? And he gives a two-part answer, which we summarize as the great commandment. To read Uh, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. And he says all of the scripture uh, is summarized in these two statements. And so this is the great commandment, to love our neighbor as ourself. But if you still have your Bible open, Jesus says this during the last week of his life. He says it in response to a question, and he's actually gotten a series of questions that have been addressed to him. So if you look back in verse 15 of chapter 22, it says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you don't care about anyone's opinion, and you're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And then if you jump to verse 23. 
The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died having no children, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third down to the seventh. And after all of them, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife shall she be? For they all had her. And then what we read in verse 34 and 35. So when the Pharisees and Sadducees had been silenced, they gathered together And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? So three times in this day of Christ's life, people come up to him and they refer to him as teacher. And they ask him a question that's meant to trap him or trick him. So they're they're very nice in what they say, but even in being nice, they don't really think of him as a teacher. So one of the points that Matthew is making for us as he's recording this is how possible it is to say nice things about Jesus but not actually believe in him. To ask him for advice without any intention of following his instruction. Teacher, you don't care about appearances. What do you say about this? Teacher, you're so smart. How do you do this or that? And we've experienced it in our ordinary life. There is a way to separate yourself from someone by being nice to them. So externally, it it looks good and it sounds good, but you're trying to get out of the conversation as fast as you can. And that's kind of what's happening. Everyone looks dressed up, it's formal, it's the words are the right words, but at each turn, their hearts and their intentions are not correct. And so in this summary of the great commandment, we also have this great challenge, which is, do we really honor him with not only our words, but also our lives? For everyone on this day, they don't. They ask good questions, but they don't really care about the answer, and they don't submit to the teaching that he gives. I mean, I experienced this about two weeks ago. I walked into a place as I was trying to plan something related to an upcoming trip, and I realized within about two minutes, I was talking to the wrong person. And we could spend the next hour together, and this just still would not end well. And so I was trying to create, I didn't want to be rude, and I didn't want to be mean, so I was trying to think, how do I get out of this? And so I was trying to think of all the nice things I could say to end the conversation. And so, oh, thank you so much, this is really helpful, I just have to show this to one other person, and then, and then I'll be back. And it worked, and I did it. But in my mind... I was like, oh my goodness, how do I get out of here? How do I stop this? We're not gonna make progress. I'm just, I think I'm working with the wrong person uh, to help me solve this problem. And so I, I was as kind as I could be in what I said, but my heart wasn't in the right place and I needed to move on. And Jesus is looking at all these people and he says, we all can do this. We can say the right things and look the right part. And if anything, people that are especially prone to this are religious people. People who go to church every week and say, oh yeah, no, I'll pray for you. Oh yeah, no, God's got this. They, they have words that are ready-made to offer up, but they might not actually pray for you and they might not actually care about you. But because they've said the right thing and it sounds good to the ear, no one else might notice, except Christ was the one person who always noticed. He could read through people. He could see what was inside the heart, not just what was said on the mind. The answer that Christ gives here in the great commandment is not original to him. 
he is quoting back from the Old Testament. And so if you still have a Bible open, I invite you to go to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 10. And here we'll see a great example that Jesus offers. Because in a different situation, someone asks a similar question, Jesus puts it back to that person, and that person gives the same answer that Jesus gave. So this is on page 869, beginning in verse 25. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who had stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. And this is commonly referred to as the parable of the good Samaritan, but keeping with the theme of the great commandment and the great challenge, this is a great example that Christ offers. Someone asks, what do I need to do to inherit life? Christ says, you tell me, what do you think? word for word, this lawyer can give the exact same answer that Jesus can. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So he knows what the right answer is. Now, to try to get out of it, poses the additional question, who is my neighbor? If this is what I'm supposed to do, and I'm supposed to be loving toward a neighbor, who is my neighbor? Who am I obligated to do this with? And the story that Jesus tells highlights for this man how easy it is to come up with religious reasons not to love people. There's a man on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho who gets jumped, beaten, and left for half dead. And then he tells of two people who, by chance, walk by him, and in walking by him, walk around him and do nothing to help him. And he specifically identifies them as people who have a religious background, a priest and then a Levite. He doesn't go into great detail about why, but just simply acknowledges that they do nothing. If anything, they, they try to get away from the problem instead of loving this person. Then he highlights a Samaritan, someone for whom most 
all of the Jews would have thought of with a negative reputation, people that were not good enough for them shouldn't be associated with them. And so he picked someone specifically of a different ethnic background that they would disdain and says, you see these religious people who found a way out of this? Now comes this Samaritan business person coming by and it says that he was moved with compassion. And here what Christ is highlighting for them is that when we think of questions of life and death and sin and not, sin is not simply doing things we know we shouldn't do. Uh, I had a coworker one time when I worked at a coffee shop who said to me, he didn't believe he ever sinned. And I was shocked. I was like, really? I've never met someone who would say that, you know, that they've never sinned. I said, so well, I'm curious then, what to you is sin? He said, hurting people. And I don't hurt people. I said, okay, fair enough. So that, that's it? That's the only thing that would be sin? Yeah. And so that's interesting because one of the things that the Bible says is that sin is not only not hurting people, but if you see something and you know you should do it and you don't do it, that's also sinful. And he kind of stopped and said, that's horrible. I said, what do you mean? He said, that means everyone would be a sinner. <laughs> and I said, actually, yeah, that's the point. <laughs> the Bible says that every one of us struggles with sin. We all sometimes do things we shouldn't do but all of us also struggle at times to do the things we know we should do. And every one of us is in that boat. We get tired and exhausted. We helped one person and it burned us, so we don't help the other person. We have a ready-made excuse for why this maybe was deserved, and we move on and we ignore people that are right next to us. And so Christ is highlighting, and surely everyone listening would have said, they shouldn't have just walked by him. They shouldn't have done nothing. And now we actually have it in our own laws today. It's called the Good Samaritan Law, that if you're within proximity of something and you have the ability to do something, you are legally obligated to do something, if you can. Where do we get that conviction from? Christ is telling this story to drive that point home to this lawyer who's trying to ask him a trick question. But this Samaritan comes... And it says that he has compassion on him. And I found this a helpful summary. Indeed, as Jesus tells the story, he uses a specific and important word to describe the Samaritan's motivation to help the injured man. This word expresses deep, heartfelt feelings of empathy often manifested physiologically. So deep are the feelings that those experiencing them are moved to loving action. It's worth noting that Jesus also uses the same word in the parable of the prodigal a few chapters later. There, Jesus intentionally highlights that the father, seeing his son return home after squandering his inheritance, is not angry or bitter, but is moved by great empathy and generous love to help and care for his son. The word Jesus uses in Luke 10 and then in Luke 15 is translated into our modern English as compassion. And so the Samaritan walking by can't, doesn't just see and process his information, but sees and begins to feel the plight of this man. And then realizes he has to do something. He can't just say, I'm praying for you. He can't just say, I hope tomorrow's a better day, or I'll call someone else. Like, the feelings are so deep 
that they have to manifest themselves in physical, tangible actions. And so that's the quote on the back of the handout for you if you received one on the way in. Neighborly love calls for truth, grace, and mercy to put on economic hands and feet. Neighborly love, caring for another person, you can't think about that apart from physical provision and generosity. As the Watkins and the Seppies asked for prayer as they love their children, it demands all of them from a physical standpoint. Love is not just singing a lullaby. It's not just offering a song. It is providing food, providing shelter, changing a diaper. All of that is the tangible expression of loving another person. And when you and I get to a vulnerable place and we need someone to do that, when someone does it for us, even if they don't use the words, we all know it comes from a place of love. You don't have to, you don't have to say it if someone starts washing your feet when you can't wash them yourself if someone provides you an opportunity that you couldn't provide for yourself. Emotionally, you receive it as kindness and grace and love because it's more than words. And more often than not, when it's done, words aren't necessary. Jesus would tell another parable about people who say they do things and don't and people who don't say it but do it. And he says, if you're gonna choose between saying the right thing or do the right thing, do the right thing. doesn't help anyone to say the right thing and do nothing. And so the commitment to love our neighbor as ourselves is to practically love them, to tangibly love them, to care about them as we would our own families. And so this man, not only in his compassion, takes the person and binds up his wounds, but then he puts him in at a hotel and tells the manager whatever other bills are incurred in the future to care for this person, I'll come back and pay for it. He would have already distinguished himself by simply having compassion to notice him, to pick him up, and to get him there. So there's a huge contrast being drawn between initially the robbers who take what is not theirs from him and now this Samaritan who gives what is his when no one else is making him and offers it as a gift. It's as big of a contrast as it gets. Those who steal from compared to the one who generously gives. He wouldn't have been a bad guy had he not done that. But when we read about it, when we see this great example set, it has a way of convicting us. So that even this lawyer at the end of it again gets the answer right when Christ says, so who do you think was a neighbor to this man who fell among the robbers? And he says, the one who showed him mercy. Who's the neighbor you'd want to live next to? Who's the neighbor you'd want to have as your coworker? Who's the neighbor that you would want to sit next to on a Sunday morning or out to eat on a Saturday night? Someone like this. Well, this is what you want, and this is what I want, and whatever human heart wants and desires. Why not go be that for other people? 
go and do likewise. But then as we read on in our Gospels, we're again amazed, not just by the example in this fictional story of a Samaritan, but that Jesus who tells this story and convicts the lawyer of what a neighbor is, is the one who would offer himself as a sacrifice for others. That God himself would move into our neighborhood, live among us, not just say words, not just offer platitudes, but come and live. And not just like the Samaritan when we're down and beaten, offer us a place to stay. But when the push came to shove and someone needed to suffer, he said he would do it in our place. That he would become the half-dead man on the side of the road so that we could walk free. That's the greatest sacrifice. And that's part of this weekend, what we celebrate even as a nation as we honor those not only who serve, we do honor everyone who serves in our armed services. But the difference between Memorial Day and Veterans Day is that on Memorial Day, we are specifically honoring those who gave the sacrifice of their life in their service of this nation. And so while we honor them all the time, there is a sense in which we recognize a uniqueness to those who've given the greatest sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, that they didn't get to come back home from their time of service. And we get to enjoy what we're doing because someone else is not able to. And we all should be humbled by that. And we all should honor that. And when we read the rest of the Gospels, we find out that Christ becomes the one who would offer his life as a sacrifice for us. For the lawyer who's asking questions he has no intention of answering. For the Samaritan who's ostracized. For the man who fell among the robbers that God ultimately has that type of compassion for us. Compassion that moves him to action on our behalf. And then we have this gift later in the New Testament in one of Paul's letters, and this is where we close. In Ephesians chapter four, Paul in just one verse tells us what's possible when we really believe that Christ has become the greatest sacrifice for us. Look at Ephesians 4, verse 28. This is on page 978. This is what can happen in your heart and mind when we really believe that God is compassionate toward us. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. What a picture. It's almost the whole parable in one verse with a twist. How could the robbers at the beginning of the story become the good Samaritan by the end of the story? Going from being the people who take what is not theirs who work hard to earn and then generously and spontaneously and extravagantly give what is. That type of transformation only comes when we really believe in and honor 
the sacrifice, the greatest sacrifice of Christ for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are and that you are a God who loves not simply in words or phrases or ideas, but that you came and lived among us in flesh and blood. And that when you see us beaten and left for half dead, you act, you move, you respond. And we thank you that in the person of your son, you have made the ultimate sacrifice for us. And we confess that uh, there is in each and every one of us part of a thief who wants what doesn't belong to us or a priest who finds excuses not to do the right thing or a lawyer who just wants to ask trick questions. And we need to be transformed from the inside out. And so we pray for whatever ways we've used our own religion as an excuse to not honor you or using nice phrases to avoid you, that you would, through your spirit, allow us to be humbled, to no longer pretend, but to consider the ways in which we really do honor you and love you. And if we really are like you in how we love our neighbors, we need your grace for all of this, and so we pray for it in abundance. In Jesus' name, amen.